This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I am very happy and really excited to be introducing one of my absolute favorite writers, Lauren Groff. Uh, the first time I saw Lauren at a reading, it was for her book, Fates and Furies. At the time, I haven't read any of her work, nor did I know what the book was about. I went to the event because I was new to this country, and I was keeping myself busy by visiting bookstores and going to author talks because if you've been in love with literature for your whole life, that's just what you do. And I'm glad that I went because that day I, di I discovered a writer and a book that would both become my favorites in my life. Uh, Lauren is just one of those rare writers that would grab your attention through her magical writing and would be a constant reminder why you fell in love with literature in the first place. Um, with her new collection of short stories, Florida, the magic is still there. Um, in the 11 stories that comprise it, you get a palpable sense of the potency and power of her writing, uh, which has reminded me again for the nth time why, my, why I am in the business of literature in the first place. Uh, Kirkus Reviews, in their review of the collection, calls it a literary tour de force of precariousness set in a blistering place, a state shaped like a gun. And the Washington Post says that with this collection, she stakes her claim to being Florida's unofficial poet laureate, as Joanne Didion is for California. Ladies and gentlemen, Lauren Groff. Thank you. Guys, it's Monday. I'm so proud of you for coming out. Thank you. Thank you, Bernard. That was so lovely. Um, I have special guests in uh, the room, and I'm about to read you something that's not not autobiographical, but it is fiction. Um, and I think that um, uh, some of the characters in this uh, would be known to them. So I'm just going to get started, and then we can talk. So my favorite thing about being on book tour is that I actually get to talk to human beings uh, because I spend most of my life like in a dark room by myself weeping. So this is much better. Um, so I'm just going to read a few pages here of this story called Ypres. The mother decides to take her two young sons to France for August. She has been ambushed all spring by quick fits like slaps to the heart. Where they come from, she doesn't know, but she is tired of keeling over in the soap aisle or on the elliptical or in the unlit streets where she walks her dread for hours at night. Also, Florida in the summer is a slow, hot drowning. The humidity grows spots on her skin, pink where she is pale, pale where she is tan. She feels like an unsexy cheetah under her clothes. These reasons seem slight dread and heat. None of her family or friends would understand. Anyway, since winter, they, with their worries about schools and scouts and tenure and yoga, have seemed so distant to her, halfway dissolved in the sunset. Her work is mysterious to them, but they can understand its necessity. So they nod knowingly when she tells them she has to do research on Guinea-Maupassant. It's not untrue. For ten years, she has been stuck on a project about the writer. Or maybe Guida Maupassant has been stuck in her, a fishbone lodged in her throat. Her boys take the news of going to France stoically. They do not even cry. Her older son will be seven at the end of August. He is of a physical beauty so rare that sometimes she can't believe he'd come out of her. He is muscular very tall for his age, with a graceful, large-eyed face like a fawn's. His beauty is mitigated by painful shyness and extreme sensitivity. He's like a perfect windless pond, her husband once said. You throw something in just to watch it sink, and you're going to see it on the bottom staring back at you for the rest of your life. <laughs> Which is actually true. The four-year-old is different. He is sunny, golden. He sucks his thumb even though they paint a bitter polish on it. He carries around a cat puppet called Whoopie Pie. He makes friends with everyone. After the endless flight during which he vibrated and did not sleep, on the train from De Gaulle to the rented apartment in the Onzième, he shows a big-boned German girl his tiny red backpack. 
The girl had been crying, but when he climbs into her lap, sucking his thumb and reaching back to fondle her ear, she clutches him to her and puts her eyes in his hair. The mother worries that he smells rancid. His skin is still covered in the milk he spilled all over himself back in Orlando, and that other Florida life that she already doesn't regret having left behind them. But the German girl doesn't seem to mind. The mother and her sons get off the train, the older boy holding the little one's hand tightly, and the mother carrying all their bags in her two strong arms. The mother looks back and sees that the solace was temporary, that the German girl has started weeping all over again. They spend the first week in Paris because the mother is hoping the boys will pick up French the way they pick up dirt. She takes them every morning to the Poussin Vert playground in the Jardin de Luxembourg to play with French children and learn French by osmosis. But her sons keep to themselves, ziplining over and over again, the little one trying to hold his brother's hand, his brother too sweaty and focused to allow him. They eat lunch, a decent prefix vegetarian at Le Restaurant Foyo, and though it's only one o'clock, she gets buzzed on a half carafe of cold white wine and laughs too hard when she shows her boys how to eat creme brulee. It disconcerts her to find that Paris has become somehow Floridian, all humidity and pink stucco and cellulite rippling under the hems of shorts. It is ten degrees warmer than it should be, much brighter and louder than the Paris that lives in her memory. She'd always thought this would be the place to be during the climate wars that she sees looming in the future. A city of water, surrounded by fields temperate and contained. But maybe there is no place to be. Maybe all places on a hotter planet will be equally bad. Desert and hunger everywhere, even here. The mother takes her boys to do touristy things in the searing afternoons, puppet shows and Eiffel Towers and museums and picturesque early dinners on the Seine. They speak for five minutes a day with her husband over Skype, but he doesn't really have time. August is when he works 18 hours a day, and the boys sense his impatience and become resentful and less and less willing to come to the computer to chat. When she speaks to adults, it's only to order things, her French going gluey in her head. At night, the boys sleep ten hours in the same cramped room with her. The mother, in order to have some time alone, drinks wine and watches French sitcoms on her computer with earphones. She really should be rereading Guy or taking his biographers into the bathtub, elegant Francis Stiegmuller, lascivious Henri Toya, but she's too tired. She'll get started tomorrow. Every evening, she tells herself that the next day they will go to visit Dr. Esprit Blanche's asylum where Guy died at 42 years old of tertiary syphilis. A century before, it was a madhouse. It had been the Palais de Lamballe. The Princess de Lamballe was Marie Antoinette's dearest friend. And when the revolutionaries came for the princess, they raped her, locked, lopped off her head, and prated it on a spike before the queen's window. When Guy was in his final throes of insanity, believing that there were precious jewels in his urine and that he was the son of God, the headless princess came through the walls to visit him. Yet, day after day, the mother doesn't go to see to Guy's last home. There would have been so much to explain to her children what syphilis is, what insanity is, what revolutions are. Instead, every day she wakes foggily with the boys at dawn, starving for pain au chocolat and coffee and fruit, and gets sucked into their life of playgrounds and joy. At last, before she can see where Guy ended his days, she runs out of time. On the seventh day, they get up very early and take a train to Rouen, where at the station they rent a Mercedes for the drive west to the Alabaster Coast in Normandy, where Maupassant was born and where he returned again and again. His mother, Laura, was from the area, a woman who gave her two sons their love of books, who went on walking tours in Europe alone as a younger woman, who dared to divorce back when divorce was not done, but who ended up a neurasthenic, sad and alone, both sons dead of syphilis, trying to strangle herself with her own long hair. The trip should take an hour, but they get lost in the twisty tiny villages, and the four-year-old pukes on whoopie pie, then falls asleep, and the six-year-old cries quietly to himself when she yells at him to stop whining about the smell, and she has to crack the window to settle her own stomach, and then drizzle whips incessantly into her eyes, and she pauses in fecant to ask directions of a man who pretends not to understand her French when she knows irritatedly that her French is in fact quite good. <laughs> she is shaking when at last they swing down a steep hillside into Ypres. It is a fishing village, all silex and brick and stone streets and hills. There's a small curve of beach covered in fist-sized stones, 
bracketed by extreme cliffs that are disappointingly not white, but creamy beige limestone with horizontal veins of gray flint. The air here, she thinks, has some kind of fizz to it, something thrilling, which makes you feel drunk, makes you want to dance and do wild things as soon as you arrive as though she'd just drunk a bottle of champagne. She's pleased with herself until she recognizes her thought as a paraphrase from Guy's best story, Boule de Suif. She parks in the lot at the casino to wait a man named Jean-Paul, who is supposed to show them to the house at three. She feels heavy when she sees on the clock that it is only eleven. We're here, she says. We're where, the older boy says. They look together through the windshield at the empty gray beach, the gray ocean, the gray sky overhead. Nowhere, he says darkly. Okay, done with that. <laughs> Thank you. So now I get to answer questions, and I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't have a filter, um, and I will, I will answer whatever you ask. Um, so um, the the hard thing is actually getting someone to ask the first question. So whoever that person is is the hero of the night, and we will all applaud. <laughs> Yay! All right, good. Yes. Okay, the question was whether I enjoy the process of writing or if I find it torturous and enjoy the fact that I have done it. Um, that's a great question. The truth is, um, in the beginning, oh, sorry, I got very hot, so I have to take this off. Um, I I did find it torturous, uh, and I didn't I didn't love sitting down every day and doing this thing that I usually failed at, right? Because most days I fail, right? I sit down, I do something, it ends up being just a mess, I throw it out, and I start over again. Um, but I don't want to do a job uh, not predicated on pure joy, right? I want to try to find a way to do this work that I love so much and love it every day. Um, so I do a number of things. I've sort of, uh, I think a lot of times writing really is the process of tricking yourself over and over again in different ways. Um, and so some of the ways that I trick myself are I allow myself to only write the thing that's really burning up inside. And so that means that sometimes I have four novels on low boil and one short story that's really screaming, right? That's the teapot on the stove that's actually like so urgent and it needs to be done. And that's fine. That doesn't mean that I'm like cheating on my novels. It just means that you go where the heat is, you go where the energy is, and you find the joy in the writing wherever the energy is. Um, it also means that I, I let myself be a, like a rank failure for the first many drafts of a story. Um, and I write them all longhand. I can't read my own ha handwriting. It's really egregious. Um, but this is all good, right? This is all good because I'm, I'm building failure into the process of writing. Um, and if you go into it thinking, you know, I'm not going to write a perfect piece of work. I'm going to write something bad, but at least I'm going to write then there are no expectations, right? You're just doing it for the reason why um, you sat down to begin with for the first story you ever wrote when you were five years old. Um, it's, it's play, right? You're just playing. Um, and the more, that, more tricks that I can find to make myself play, the more fun I have. And when it's not fun, I'll go for a run. And I would much rather be writing than running in the Florida heat. Um, so it's actually kind of punishment, to be perfectly honest. Or I'll take a nap, right? Or some days, you know, I'll, I'll try really, really hard for that half an hour that is my job. And then I'll read for the rest of the day. Because reading is also writing. Um, and especially if you're reading uh, the way that uh, a really good reader reads. Now, I have to say, um, I really think that reading is, um, is, is, is an art, an art form. Uh, because just the way that the, a concert musician um, doesn't actually create the work, but is uh, expresses the work through themselves. And without them, there is no music, right? There's no music going to the audience's ears. The right reader creates the work with the writer. Um, so it's really, 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 really important to be a good reader. Um, so, you know, that's also my writing too. And so that's why I get through lots of books in a year because um, most of the time I'm, um, I'm backing away from my failures uh, <laughs> earlier in the day. And I, you know, 
failure is awesome. I think we should make t-shirts that say, I'm a failure, right? Um, because it's good to embrace it. Because what, what failure does is it teaches you what you know of the world. It shows you the boundaries of your knowledge and your understanding, right? And so coming up against it again and again is a good thing in a creative life. I just went way off piste, um, but that's okay. Uh, anyone have something else? Don't be shy. Oh, you. Well, yeah. Thank you. Oh, uh, you're standing you, up. You kind of answered a lot of it, actually, okay. that one. <laughs> um, but it, I might as well anyway. The, you talk a lot about about destroying your work. Yes. When you write. You destroy an enormous amount of work. Mm -hmm. um, how did you get comfortable doing that, and where did you, when did you become confident that it would still be there the next day. Yeah. Okay. I am not confident it'll be there the next day, right? Because every time you sit down to write anything, you're creating your tools as you're doing it. Um, and if, if you're doing something that's interesting, nobody's ever done what you're about to do, right? So there's no guarantee you'll be ever able to finish anything anyway, right? So why not try? Um, so I think my... I, in grad school, um, I was the sort of really picky writer. I came out of poetry. And so I would write line by line, um, and I would burnish each line until they like radiated light. Um, but the, I, I'm not a good poet, obviously, because I did that poorly. Um, but then, you know, in grad school, I decided um, I'm just going to just fully commit to the idea that um, what's on the page isn't necessarily what needs to be in the story, right? Um, what's in the story is a completely separate thing. And I have to find what that is. And the way that I have to find is by airing, um, actually wandering through the woods of the story until I, I find my way. So um, it's not a comfortable thing. I, I get, like, I'm human, right? I get really frustrated and angry with myself whenever I fail. Um, but at the same time, the next day, I'm starting up again, and I'm saying, I'm going to try again, right? Um, and the other thing, too, is I, um, again, maybe I'm, it's, it's good to trick yourself. Um, if you throw it out completely and can't get it anymore, and you can't access it anymore, then you have to start over again, right? And you have to be comfortable with it, because you have given yourself no alternatives. Um, so, but I wouldn't recommend, so this, I have, I teach in an MFA program called Warren Wilson, and people are like, well, sh should I do this? And I'm like, no, um, you, but you need to find your way, right? And whatever way sort of dovetails with who you are as a human being and with your, your flaws as a human being. And I have such massive flaws as a human being that it, this is the, the incredibly insane way that I have to go about being a writer. <laughs> Thank you. I know it's scary. I'm not scary though. I promise. Oh, you're there. You're already there. Thank you. I thought you were. You worked here. No. <laughs> I wish. Um, I, I get the sense in your your writing and in your interviews that you've spent a lot of time thinking about actually the state of Florida. Oh God. Uh, you know, and what makes it distinctive, different from other places. So, I mean, I wonder if you've spent any time. Thinking about, you know, does does Florida make people crazy, or do crazy people move yeah. to Florida? How does that work? Right. Yeah, yes. Um, well, you know, seventy percent of the state, the people who live in the state, are not actually from there. So I really do think that it's a magnet for insanity. I, I do. Um, but you know, it's also it's so funny because um, I believe that landscape really does change the brain, uh, and being around. Um, giant predators that can like pull you under the water and then eat you that does something to you right being around um heat that is actually it feels like it could kill you um it, it does something to you being around um palmetto bugs which are flying cockroaches um that can do something to you right or in a house my i have this lovely old house from 1904 which in florida is really really ancient um but it um, in the walls, I know there are termites, right? And so, like the the idea that they're living there with me in the place that is my my comfort and my solace that also really bothers you. So, so I think that you know Florida can be sort of somewhat of an infection and get it into you also, um, but it also does draw 
sometimes um, insanity to it. Um, I wouldn't call it the shape of a gun. I, I, it was curious uh, when um, Kirkus said that. I, I think it's more of a shape of a dong, right? <laughs> it's like the dong of America just sort of hanging off there. Um, it's, it, like That's what I see every time I see it. Um, but it's also, you know, I, I truly, truly love Florida. I, I talk a lot of crud about it, but I actually really love it. Um, and I love it because um, the nature, I mean, the things that nobody sees, right? When you go to Florida, you go to Disney World, you go to Miami Beach, right? You don't go to the swamps, um, but the swamps are where all the interesting things happen. Um, and uh, you know, Payne's Prairie, where there are these wild horses that have been there since the conquistadors. I mean, that's an amazing place. All of the birds. I mean, if I were Jonathan Franzen, I would go nuts there every single day. But I don't even know what they are. I mean, they're just really beautiful. So, I mean, um, it's a place that's full of absolute wonder. And it's a place that's full of horror on a daily basis. Um, manifested as uh, Florida Man. Do you guys know Florida Man? Yeah. So those of you who don't. On Twitter, there's this amazing account um, called Florida Man, and he's like the worst superhero ever. Um, because what they do is they they it's a basically an accumulation of all the um, the headlines that say like Florida Man tried to stick up a, a grocery store with a peacock, right? Like, I mean, it's like all the weird things that happen. Um, and so he becomes this character of absolute strangeness, Florida man. Um, that's a good question. My answer is I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, what's your question? Hi. Um, I, I really appreciate your uh, remark about building uh, failure into the process of writing. I've tried really hard to endeavor to um, bring writing into the process of failure, so Good. thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you um, about kind of honesty in fiction, yeah. and I was rereading um, some of your uh, short stories in Delicate um, Edible Birds, and um, I really, really love the, the title story. Um, and the first time I read it, I was thinking, um, this is such a horrifying experience of uh, experiencing these men lose themselves. And then the second time I read it, I was like, I started feeling like, it's almost like they they are finding themselves in a way mm -hmm. that's kind of disturbing and scary. Mm -hmm. um, so, I guess, how do you like be that honest? And and how do you you know what's the process of of asking your readers to say you, you're going to accept this level of honesty? Ooh, that that's a sense. really difficult. I'm question. testing your. Um, yeah. I have no filter. So oh, good. <laughs> So um, I have to answer this question by sort of nodding at what inspired that story. So it's a, it's a story called Delicate Edible Birds. It's in my first collection of stories. Um, and it's based on um, a Guy de Maupassant story, weirdly enough, called Boule de Suif, um, which is, I have to sort of explain what Boule de Suif is. It's this um, beautiful novella. Um, really satirical and really, really funny about when the Hessians invaded France. Um, I think it was 1870, some, somewhere around there. Um, uh, they were, uh, th these people were fleeing from Rouen and um, they all got into a carriage together and there were like nuns and business people and a prostitute named Boudesuif. And they all treated her terribly at first, even though she offered them her food from a basket. Um, and then eventually they sort of got won over by her. And then they were stopped by um, uh, um, the, the bad people, right? Like the soldiers. And they said that if Puldesweef came into the inn and serviced the men, that um, they could go on. And suddenly all these religious people, these people who looked down at Bledisweef because she was a prostitute, were like, just do it, right? Like, get us out of this scenario. And it became this, it's a story about hypocrisy. And it's a story about, um, like, if you re scratch even the surface of most people, you're going to get to what they really think and what they really believe, right? So um, that wasn't the first manifestation of the story that I had tried to write in the past. And I tried to find different forms for sort of an homage story um, based on Boulder Sweep. It wasn't until I had read a Margaret Gellhorn, uh, Martha Gellhorn um, autobiography. She's this incredible war reporter from uh, World War II. She's a genius. Uh, she also happened to be married to Ernest Hemingway, but like that's not important. Um, <laughs> 
But um, so those things together created this one story that sort of like bloomed and became a story. So the thing is, um, in the first uh, manifestations of that story, I wasn't being honest and I wasn't trying to require honesty from my reader. And I wasn't um, getting deep down into what the story was truly about. And it just took a lot of um, trying and trying and then finally finding the story that I think that ended up being the story in the book. So um, it's it's really about um, listening to what the story is telling you. And it's about listening to um what the characters need, I think, in a lot of ways, and um, trying to find that manifestation in each sentence of the story, too. So it's all, it's a, it's, it's, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think it's, it's a, it's a hard process. And it's, um, from afar, it feels more like alchemy than anything else in a lot of ways. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Yeah. Hi. Uh, Hi. During your story, uh, I thought I heard an echo of a Robert Lowell line, uh, fishbone caught in your throat. And I was curious, and you also said you studied poetry. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you ever used poetry to inspire your fiction, maybe as a jumping off point, take yeah. a line here or there. Yeah, abs- I do all the time. Um, and it, so every morning, uh, m- many writers have different ways of going about like starting the practice of writing. Some people meditate. I'm too anxious to meditate. Um, some people, you know, like light a candle. Um, I read a poem, um, and usually it's Emily Dickinson, just because I find her so bizarre and wonderful. And like you can read the same four line poem for, uh, basically every day for a year and not quite quite get you know every aspect of what she's saying. Um, and I love that that feeling of sort of being on the edge. Um, but in this book, there's even a, a story that sort of refers to and plays around with some ideas in the John Donne poem um, at the Round Earth's Imagined Corners. And that's the, the title of the, the poem. So I get so much joy and beauty. And I steal so much from poets because poets understand structure in a way that uh, fiction writers often don't. Um, so if there are writers in the room, steal structures from poets. It's really important. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Hi. Hi, how are you? Great, how are you? Good. Good. Um, just have a couple questions. I'm wondering if you wrote stories as a child. Mm. And wondering um, writers that have influenced you the most, and then books that you've read multiple times. Okay. So um, I did write short stories as a child, uh, but I mostly wrote poetry because, again, I thought I was a poet. Um, uh, things that I've read over and over and over again are uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch. I read it once a year. I just love that book so much. I, I try to reread um, The Inferno a lot for a lot of reasons. I think it's funnier than people people say it is. It's, <laughs> right, it is a colossal diss track. Um, not even kidding. He sticks every one of his enemies into hell. Into like a really, really grotesque version of hell. It's awesome. Um, and like, if you think that writers write out of purity, uh, no, we write out of vengeance mostly. Um, so uh, I read that. I love Ann Carson, and I reread her long poem, The Glass Essay, over and over again. I'm not quite sure why, but I, it's just something that I like go back to if I just need something, um, and something inexplicable. Um, Emily Dickinson, again. Um, I have reread uh, all Alice Munro probably three times now, just out of a sheer uh, beauty. I've reread the first book of Proust like four times, but I haven't proceeded beyond that. <laughs> I don't know why. It just, it, it, I just stop and then I like go away. Uh, same thing with Canal Scarred. I've only read that twice, but I can't get beyond the half, second half of the second book. Um, so, but I also think in reading too, if a book doesn't speak to you at that time, that's okay. You can come back to it and read it again later, or you can, um, come to it again with a different mindset and a different self. Uh, and I think it's important to sort of be open to all this. Did I answer your question? You did. Okay, Thank great. You. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So you've probably been asked this a million times, but. Sure. How did you feel when Barack Obama <laughs> tweeted that he loved Fates and Furies? Yeah. Like, where were you when you found out? How did you feel about it? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I just good. feel like that is the ultimate it was. review. Forget Kirkus. Forget the New York Times. You don't need anything else. <laughs> no. I, like, I 
pretty much died. Okay, um, cool. So, uh, so yeah, so I, so I was on Twitter, which I shouldn't be, um, in the middle of the day, and someone tweeted it at me. It was like, look at that, this is amazing. And I was like, right. Um, but it was in, I think, Entertainment Weekly. Like he said it in Entertainment Weekly. And so, like, I actually threw the phone because <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, and then, like, shivered um, and then picked it up and called my husband and made him come home um, because like, he's my, he really is my filter. He filters everything for me and I couldn't process. Um, and then, but I also made him stop for a bottle of champagne on the way. Um, and we drank the champagne. And he's like, well, I guess I'm going back to work. And I said, okay. <laughs> And then, I mean, it was a great day, right? And it was, there was definitely a Barack um, bump, which is amazing, right? And it's also meant that um, my um, relatives who have been like, she's a novelist, actually were like, she's a novelist, right? Like, we like her now, uh, which is great. Um, I'm assuming they don't live in Florida. No, some of them do. Oh. Actually, my uh, racist uncle definitely has not talked to me since then. But, um, um, but, uh, okay, so here's the best part of this. And this is the part that makes me love this man forever. Um, forever. Um, about two weeks later, um, I get uh, this huge envelope in the mail. And the return address is just the White House. Right? Like, it's like <laughs> amazing. And I open it up. And there's a handwritten note by Barack Obama, which, like, who has that graciousness? to actually write and tell me why he loved my book, right? I mean, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm getting emotional. And I didn't let anyone touch it but me, and I got it framed. And honestly, if there were a fire in my house, um, I definitely would save my children first. Um, the husband can save himself. The dog is done, but I'm saving, <laughs> I'm saving the letter on my wall. I mean, it is, it is the thing that I love, so... It was good. I did. Um, I I got quoted about a week ago. I like never speak to British journalists ever, um, because I was saying, um, you know, I I loved it. It was wonderful. But then I was like, but you know, I knew I was a good writer before Barack Obama told me this. So I, like I didn't need him to tell me this. And they took off with it. And they're like, Lauren thinks she's better than right. Like it's, it's, so it's so. I just want to say I'm very grateful. Yeah, and it was it was the best thing that's happened so far, and I feel like it's all downhill from there. <laughs> it's okay. All right, thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, wondering how you establish relationships with your characters, and yeah. if they visit you during the day at oh. awkward moments. Yeah. And uh, what you do about that? Um, so I'm not like Hilary Mantel, who I think is like an insane genius, right? And so what she does, she actually puts a chair in front of her in the room, opens the door, and invites her characters <laughs> in to come sit in the chair. And then they have this long conversation, which if you can imagine doing that with the glowering face of Cromwell sort of looking at you, you're, you're amazing and you deserve everything. Also, um, Charles Dickens used to put on hats and make faces and, you know, do this until he got his characters and started speaking in the voices of his characters. I don't do that either. Well, I believe in the subconscious, in, in developing characters. So I will pull them out. Um, I will embroider life. I will, like, put them into situations that are a little bit tricky. I will maybe write a few things in, in these situations that have nothing to do with the story or the novel at the time, and then I'll throw them back in. And I, um, I do believe in this. I believe that behind me, there's like a giant halo of bad ideas sort of spinning. Um, and eventually, some of them become good ideas and they become, they come down and, and, you know, I'm able to express them. Um, other, there's a, this incredible poet, and now I'm blanking on her name, of course. Um, but she's, she, she calls this process, um, like she's weeding in the garden and suddenly she sees a tiger streaking by. And if only she can reach out and grab the tiger's tail, she can pull the poem um, into her. And I love that idea, right? Like that, that there are these incredible moments passing by us all by on a daily basis. Right. And all we need to do is sort of reach out and grab and maybe stick them into the 
spinning halo or or like express them yeah so i i do a lot of character work like method work but i also um believe in time um and time really does create uh deeper characters and and failure creates deeper characters thank you for the question Hello. Hi, how are you? Uh, you've noted that Florida's a lot of transplants, uh-huh. but how about the others, the Florida crackers the up near yeah. where yeah. you are? How have you learned about and dealt with them, and how has that perhaps influenced uh, your writing? Yeah, so um, so there was, so you did use the word Florida crackers, and I just want to say that that's actually not a bad word. Um, it's actually from his history, um, because people say this, and everyone goes, like this, because it, it seems like it's a slur. Um, so it comes from the original settlers of Florida who had cracked their whips because they were the first cowboys. Um, so they were called the Florida Crackers, just so you know. Um, but now it's used as derogatory, so yeah. Um, but anyway, so so I live in Gainesville, right? It's a, it's a university town. It's full of incredibly over-educated people. I think that um, my... Right, my um, my pizza man has a PhD. Um, this happens a lot there. I mean, it's really hard to get a really great job there unless you make it yourself. Um, but and that's the bubble. That's a really super progressive, deep blue bubble. Um, barely outside of town, you 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 entered the opposite Florida, right? Um, and that is. Uh, sometimes much more interesting, um, especially as an observer. And I don't feel like I belong in Florida or in Gainesville, so I'm always an observer. <laughs> um, so just the other week, I went with a friend. Actually, she she's from D.C. Um, she came down to visit, and I thought, what a treat. I'm going to take her to, like, real Florida. Um, so I took her to this place called Bob's River, River Place. It's on the Sewanee, <laughs> and it's hilarious. Um, there are people in the room who know it. Uh, it's really, really funny. So it's um, there are no lifeguards. Um, they're basically just like 40-foot cliffs from which people have rope swings out into the Sewanee, which is not devoid of alligators and snakes, by the way. Um, and so you get a bunch of really young men who just want to like do flips and break their necks all the time. And women who like wander around with no... Sh- like I loved it. There was no bodily shaming whatsoever there. It was just this beautiful place where the youth of Florida came together um, to really loud country music and um, and showed off and did flips and broke their necks. And it was like extraordinary. And we came away from it with my very sophisticated friend saying, I don't know if I ever want to go there again, but it was really amazing. Um, so like the rest of the country, there are pockets of politically minded people um, who only hear what their friends say, right? And, and what their friends say is increasingly um, in sort of a bubble, right? And I think it's contingent upon us, um, all of us, to break those bubbles as much as we possibly can and to try to go into the places where people don't want to listen to you and be charming and make them listen to you. Um, So we're trying. We're doing our best. Uh, We'll see how it goes. Um, uh, We need to turn Florida away from the red and into the blue. Um, But we're going to do it. We're going to do it. It's going to happen. We're going to tempt more people down to the blue. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Hello. Hi. Thank over, you. Over here. Other, oh, other sorry. Mind. Other okay. side. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, loved your writing ever since I read Fates and Furies last year. Um, disclosure, I am from Florida. Uh, yes. But I was actually born here but lived there for 17 years awesome. and I'm now back. So I empathize, empathize a lot with what you're saying about not feeling like you belong. Um, but also the kind of liberal bubbles. and uh, I uh, had a question about... Um, some of your prose and how it relates to different themes that I find really compelling um, and have noticed throughout your other works. And if this is too detailed or I love it, boring, whatever, uh, feel free to skip to the interesting part or what you find compelling. So um, I really like how you write um, women in relation to nature. And uh, my favorite stories out of the collection were I Wall Above and Below in the Midnight Zone and uh, I read all of these while camping, by the way, so all Yay. of these kind of like had like a really nice um, resonance. And um, with those relationships between kind of 
feminine and nature. I think, and obviously the art of reading is always going to be on the reader itself. So my interpretation of it has been, um, you have a much more kind of realistic view of women and of nature and not necessarily kind of all of the positive lights where I feel like when you talk about, um, masculine energies, it's, you know, golden light and, um, positive angel like energy. Interesting. Uh, okay. So, so, and not necessarily that that's all of the men, uh-huh. but the, the men you seem to like in your writing, like your sons or the husband like figure, hmm. um, the, um, main character in Arcadia, which I'm forgetting the name of right now. Bits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, also, uh, Fates and Furies. And the, but these women in the stories that I mentioned, um, it, it feels like to me, they're dealing with a lot more, um, the tumultuousness of nature and mm-hmm. the writing that you are interacting with, mm-hmm. um, or putting in with them. And I was wondering kind of how you feel like writing your stories that are centered more ma- around women, mm-hmm. how, um, you feel like that fits into your creative process, sure. um, or not as much of a creative process or how it relates to those different themes of nature or things you like exploring. So uh, this book is very much invested in ideas of the wild, right? Um, domesticity versus the wild. Not Maybe not necessarily even versus, but um, a way of trying to wed domesticity in the wild. And I think it, it very much comes from um, my own perception of not wanting to be domesticated in any way. And in fact, really envying um, the snake-like qualities in men sometimes. Um, I, yeah, I, I can tell you about a time when I got in trouble for this. Um, but um, so, you know, if you look at my work as a whole, men are not always in golden light, I swear to God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes, okay. I agree. Um, um, but women in this book in particular are very ambivalent. Um, but I think that ambivalence is um, is not the way that we think of it in in America. Um, in America, we think of ambivalence as being sort of like feeling wishy-washy, kind of meh about the world. Ambivalence is actually incredibly powerful, and it's being suspended between very powerful emotions. Um, and they are suspended between absolute love, right, of the the their domesticity in some ways and absolute hatred of what that means in the larger world. Um, And so I think that this book is trying to explore those themes through nature because it's so prevalent and it's so obvious and it comes inside your domestic space in Florida in ways that I think it probably doesn't in DC. Um, You know, there's like this weird little story, but um, I'm I'm frequently um, unable to sleep at night. And so I stay up some nights uh, until I call him the Oracle, but there's this little lizard that lives in a grate in my house. And he's, he's about this big and he's white because I don't think he has to go outside to find food, which freaks me out. Um, but I, I sometimes sit there and just wait in silence for the Oracle to kind of slowly come out. And it's a reminder that, you know, we live in Florida in these air conditioned houses, but we're really not it. The, the, the bear, the, the barrier is not, um, impermeable. It's actually deeply permeable and it, and things go in and out all the time. Um, so yeah, thank you. I don't know if I answered your question. I hope no, no, I did. No. Uh, you did. It wasn't okay. really a question. I okay. just wanted to ask. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> it. Hi. Hi. Um, I am Italian. I am a writer too. I live here and I want to ask you something about the translations. Yes. And how do you feel about translation? I am a very close friend of the translator who translated you into Italian. Not Chiara. Uh, uh, yes. Si. And uh, <laughs> and so I know you are in very good hands. But yes. uh, personally speaking, I had my novel translated into German and I couldn't uh, read a line and I, yeah. I completely lost the control of my mm-hmm. book and that scared me. And I wanted to ask you what, how do you feel about mm-hmm. your your books translated in languages you don't know? So here's the thing about my books. And I, oh God, I'm about to say something um, probably I shouldn't. But um, as soon as they're published in any language, they're not mine anymore, right? They're, they're the readers. Um, and that means that they're the readers to control and the readers to respond to or the readers to hurl across the room. And I can't, I can't do anything about it, right? So 
I have had books translated. Fates and Furies is translated in, into 30 languages, right? And of those languages, I can maybe read two um, and can only speak one other, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm not, I can't be concerned about it. Um, you just have to have faith. And you have to have faith in the reader in English, in the reader in Italian, and the reader in the, in the translator. And in good both. translators, yes. Yeah, <laughs> because translation truly, it's an art form, right? I mean, a good translator can actually transform a book. They're, they're literally, um, translate is to carry across. They're carrying mm. the reader across um, this, the river of, um, from one bank to the other. And I think it's just, it's beautiful to just relinquish control and say, Okay. If you do a bad job, that's okay, right? <laughs> I will never know. <laughs> Thank you. You'll be fine. It'll be good. Oh, hi. Sorry. Hi. Yes. Uh, you teach in an MFA program. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you think you can teach graduate students to become decent writers? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is always the perennial question, right? Okay. So um, you can't. Um, <laughs> But you can shorten the amount of time that it takes for them to teach themselves. Uh, and you can do this by um, showing them the language of criticism and showing them the books they need to be reading um, and uh, demonstrating passion and, um, and uh, supporting them. I mean, I think that the, the job of any teacher is just to be full on enthusiastic and try to find the thing that the person needs the most and guide them there, right? So you can't teach someone talent, but I also don't believe necessarily in talent. Um, I do think, so um, Flaubert said talent is uh, a long patience. And in some ways, that's kind of true, right? So if you're just patient enough with yourself, if you're exacting enough with yourself, someday you're going to get there. And I believe this is absolutely the case. So yeah, you just, I, I, I teach in a low residency uh, MFA program, which does not mean that I'm in academia at all. It just means that once in a while, I spend um, 10 days on a campus in Asheville and um, slowly go crazy. But it's, 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 it's a lot of fun. Thank you. Hi, I know you. You know me, I do. Hi. Um, yeah, uh, it's really interesting at the Iceland Writers Retreat. Um, in our workshop, <laughs> Erica loves that. In our workshop on, um, we talked about evil. Yes. And I was wondering if you're exploring that for a project that you mm. might work on. Because I read Independent People after yes. I was there. I should have read it before I was there. But I read it afterwards. And then I'm like going, well, this integration of the folklore into their culture and how... how I, it's a very unique place because mm. it has all these contradictions geographically, yeah. which you have also in Florida. Yeah, yeah. So Iceland is amazing. The Icelandic writers um, retreat is unbelievable. Talk to Erica if you want to hear anything about it. It's great. Um, um, I'm not doing anything in particular on evil, but it's always on my mind. And I think it's probably because I was raised as a really strict Calvinist Protestant. Um, where, right, evil is apparent everywhere, and you being born with a vagina, you're born into evil, basically. Um, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's my early training in, in the Bible and in feeling sinful um, has really affected me forever. But okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really interesting, the discussion we had there. So I was just curious if that was yeah you were exploring no okay. but i do like evil people so <laughs> well, it's in everything it, it, yeah. there wouldn't be any passion without something exactly evil, right right? <laughs> right i mean i don't like evil people but they're interesting exactly. yes yes thank you thank you hi hi um so i was wondering if you can talk a little bit about your decision to tell fates and furies from both perspectives mm -hmm. if, if that was something you like knew going into it or sort of how you decide like whose story it is, yeah. and if it's multiple people's stories. So I began this book, um, Fates and Furies, uh, as I was writing Arcadia, which is the opposite book in many ways. And I, and I began to write Fates and Furies because it was the opposite book, because I was like taking my heart out on a daily basis and like eating it. Um, and so I wanted to write a book that was all about opera and wild and marriage and sex and like 
colorful, right? Um, so I, I did know from the beginning that I was telling two narratives. Um, and, but I thought in the beginning I was telling two separate books and I wanted them to be able to be read back and forth. And if you read them this way, they would say a completely different story than if you read them this way. Um, and I wanted for, to be, to force my readers to read my work at least twice, which is so mean. Um, but I wanted them the experience of seeing things in, in different ways. Yeah. Anyway, so like years later, I finished uh, the books and I have this whole vision and like even the covers that is going to come out in a box, right? And you pick them out like that. Um, so I had this vision. I give it to my agent. Um, he makes me fly up to New York City, which I hate doing. Um, and he sits me down and he's like, you know what? And he pushes the books together and he's like, it's like a marriage. It's not two books, but two individuals in one larger whole. And he made me rewrite it, um, basically. Um, I, it was like the most beautiful way of telling me that I had failed. Um, and so I cried and I did it. Um, so from the beginning, I knew that I was telling different um, stories from different perspectives. And it was actually the reason why I wanted to do this. And then like three years into writing it, the affair came out and I got really angry because they stole my idea. And so, yeah. Anyway, thank you for your question. Yeah. <laughs> We have time for this one last okay, question excellent. here. Okay, excellent. Hi. Oh, this is kind of dark then. Yes. Um, so throughout this book and like a lot of the stories, um, climate change sort of looms in the background, mm -hmm. like both physically and then in like the minds and fears of the characters. And so I'm wondering, like as someone who I'm sure obviously thinks about this a lot and who has children and sort of thinks about the future, like what are your thoughts about the future? Are you hopeful or not? Or Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, what I do want to say is we got to get these people out of office because we need to address climate change immediately, like yesterday. Um, and in Iceland, um, there's this incredible Icelandic writer who was talking about it. And he was said this one beautiful thing that I'm never going to be able to shake again. But he said that he's watching the glaciers melt um, and they're melting so rapidly and they're going to be gone soon. And he said, you know, humans have changed geologic time. Um, and we force geologic time to become human time, but we're responding to it geologically, like in geologically geological slowness, right? We can't take four years to come to a summit and talk about what's happening. Like we can't, there, we have to be urgent about it. So the fact that I have children makes me painfully, almost vulnerably aware of it on a daily basis. And um, it fills me with like, incandescent rage to be honest um and so uh i it's we are all in this room complicit and we're all in this room responsible for changing things um and if we don't um you know my my kids are gonna suffer and i don't want that to happen so yeah sorry guys <laughs> <laughs> um but there is hope, right? Nature wants to live, right? Um, my beautiful friend, she wrote H's for Hawk. Helen, what's her last name? Yes, McDonald. Oh my God, she is my friend, I promise. Um, <laughs> but she said um, the narrative that, that nature is just slowly dying is the wrong narrative. We need to do, spread the narrative that nature, if we just give it a little hand, will come back on force because it wants to. Life wants to live. So I think that this is absolutely the case. And, and if we get, if we have any hope, the hope is that, um, all we have to do is just push as hard as we can and nature will come back. Right? Okay. okay. Love you guys. <laughs> Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.